Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. And yet another strike in America. Nursing homes in Detroit. A breakdown in talks between SAG-AFTRA and the movie studios. The 2024 COLA for Social Security recipients. And today on the show, the latest from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and labor lawyer Andrew Strom on the National Labor Relations Act. Welcome to the Friday, October 13th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Brent Taylor will be our first guest on the show today. He is a third-generation Teamster who became a proud member 39 years ago at the age of 17. And he did this as a dock checker for Yellow Freight in Dallas, Texas, a company that is no longer. I'm sure we'll talk about that. That was a sad story in itself. After serving as a union steward for nine years, he became an organizer for Local 745. That was back in 97 before becoming assistant business rep and president. Then in 2004, Brent was elected to lead Local 745 as secretary-treasurer, a position he has held for the last 16 years. He's also an elected trustee for both the Southern States and Southern Region Retirement Funds and secretary-treasurer for Joint Council 80. He has served as co-chair on numerous committees within the Teamsters Union. That includes Southern Region Freight, National Master Freight, Southern National Automobile Transporters, Texas Conference Joint Transfer Cartage. Well, in March of last year, so about a year and a half ago, Brent Taylor was sworn in as Southern Region Vice President of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. And what we're going to talk about today is the members of that local 745 in Greenville, Texas, voting 117 to 23 for a very strong contract, a new contract. It's a three-year deal for 200 workers, including an 11.5% wage increase over the life of the contract. And Brent says the Teamsters won this contract because worker solidarity forced the company's hand. The company is called Solvay. And uh, when the company refused to negotiate, the workers voted to authorize a strike, which showed the company what it should have known all along, which is the Teamsters fight to win. And we're not backing down. The victory there was helped by the fact that Solvay Teamsters are highly skilled workers who help produce important materials used to build commercial airlines and military helicopters as well as airplanes and not only is it very difficult to replace these workers but they also operate in a very important place in the nation's supply chain for planes and helicopters so if there's a strike there we have problems a lot of problems it's amazing because it doesn't take much to disrupt the supply chain i think we found that out in the uh, pandemic so uh, brent taylor will be our first guest on the show today 
And uh, this is on behalf of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, proud national sponsors of America's Workforce. Later in the show, we're going to check in with Andy Strom. I love this guy. We, uh, we joined with him some months back. And Joyce Goldstein, who we started this uh, series with about maybe two years ago, where we dissect certain labor um, cases, maybe rulings by the labor board, sometimes by the Supreme Court. Well, what Andy's going to do today, and he comes to us, well, not not on behalf of the service employees, International Union. He has served for years as counsel to them, but he is a blogger for a website put together by Harvard University called On Labor. If you get an opportunity, do check that out. Lots of good labor news there. Today, Andy's going to talk about how the general counsel of the labor board has submitted briefs in pending cases trying to address two very serious flaws in how the National Labor Relations Act has been interpreted. You know, there's there's so many laws on the books, but depending on who, if you are far to the left, you see that law one way. If you're far to the right, you see it just the opposite way. Now, here's what we're going to get into right now. If workers vote to unionize, the employer can simply refuse to bargain until a circuit court issues an order requiring it to bargain. Those of you listening right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This process sometimes takes two, maybe three years. And the only remedy for this is a prospective bargaining order. And the workers get no compensation for the two to three year delay. Keep that in mind. So, Jennifer Abruzzo, who's the general counsel of the Labor Board, is trying to change that. Secondly, employers are allowed to force workers to sit through captive audience meetings where the employer bombards you with anti-union propaganda. We've talked about this on the show many, many times. It happens every day. In fact, it's a, <laughs> it's a big industry for union-busting attorneys who counsel companies on this. Well... The Labor Board and the courts have allowed this based on the what Andy says is a misguided notion that prohibiting captive audience meetings would infringe on employers' free speech rights. But, but, free speech rights do not include the right to force someone else to listen to your speech. Again, Jennifer Abruzzo, general counsel, is trying to change this. Now, we have reported there's a number of states, I'm going to say just a handful right now, who have, they haven't banned captive audience meetings, but what they did, they changed the law so if you refuse to go, you won't be penalized or fired. Several states, New York being the the last to uh, push that law. And it's signed into law, by the way, by the governor there. So this is going to be interesting with uh, Andrew Andrew Strom as uh, our second guest right here on America's Workforce. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income real estate and equity investment options to clients across the nation. BoydWatterson.com is the website. Three Detroit nursing homes representing 250 workers, all part of the Service Employees International Union, went on strike this week for higher wages and benefits. The workers gathered at the Four Seasons Nursing Home and were joined 
by one of our congressional representatives, Rashida Tlaib, who said, for you to walk out and demand better conditions, better wages, it takes courage, and you're inspiring some other people to take that step, and you deserve better. You all take care of the most vulnerable among us, those in nursing homes. So you can add another strike. Where, what are we now, 400,000 people on strike? Latest out of the uh, UAW, Detroit's three automakers have laid off close to 5,000 workers now at factories that are not among the plants that have been hit by the UAW strikes. The companies say the strikes have nevertheless forced them to impose those layoffs, and they note that the job cuts have occurred mainly at factories that make parts for assembly plants that were closed by strikes. In one case, layoffs have been imposed at a factory that uses supplies from a parts factory on strike. Now, the union is rejecting that argument. They contend that the layoffs are not justified and were imposed as part of the company's pressure campaign to persuade UAW members to accept less favorable terms. The factories that have been affected by layoffs are in six states right now, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Kansas, Indiana, and New York. Sam Fiorani is an auto analyst. He works with a company called Auto Forecast Solutions, a consulting firm. And he said he thinks the layoffs reflect a simple reality. The automakers are losing money because of the strikes by slowing or idling factories that are running below their capacities because of strike-related part shortages. The companies can mitigate further losses. He said it doesn't make sense to keep running at 30 or 40% of capacity when it normally runs at 100%. Now, the uh, striking workers are receiving $500 a week from the union strike pay fund. By contrast, anyone who is laid off, well, they would qualify for state unemployment aid, which, depending on a variety of circumstances, could be less or more than $500 a week. I know in the state of Ohio, it's not going to be $500 a week. Sean Fain, president of the union, says their plan won't work. The UAW will make sure any worker laid off in the Big Three's latest attack will not go without an income. Meanwhile, the UAW's targeted expanding strike strategy is understood to be severely disruptive for the automakers while requiring only 22% of the Big Three's 150,000 auto workers to strike. We had a really good conversation yesterday with uh, Dave Green. If you missed it, check out the show yesterday. It's on awfpodcast.com. Region 2B is uh, Ohio and Indiana. And uh, Dave was in uh, Toledo when we talked to him yesterday. And he was talking about all the issues that they're trying to iron out in the uh, in the talks right now. They're, they're making some progress, although they had a hiccup with Ford because uh, – they called for a strike in Texas, the truck plant there, because uh, Ford just wasn't uh, living up to what they were saying. So uh, 8,700 workers at that plant, which is the most profitable plant in the country for Ford. AWFpodcast.com. The talks between the Screen Actors Guild and the studios have broken down. 
that's too bad because they they supposedly were moving in the right direction. Now, the negotiations are suspended. This according to a statement by the studios. I have a uh, comment here from Fran Drescher. Now, this is my union. And there's several contracts. I've said this on the show many, many times. Obviously, I'm not on strike. I'm under a different contract. Fran Drescher, who was just... Um, Re-elected as union president. You may remember her from the nanny. She said, it is with profound disappointment that we report the industry's CEOs have walked away from the bargaining table after refusing to counter our latest offer. We have negotiated with them in good faith, despite the fact that last week they presented an offer that was shockingly worth less than what they proposed before the strike began. These companies refuse to protect performers from being replaced by artificial intelligence. They refuse to increase your wages to keep up with inflation. And they refuse to share a tiny portion of the immense revenue that your work generates for them. We have made big, meaningful counters on our end, including completely transforming our revenue share proposal, which would cost the companies less than 57 cents per subscriber each year. And they have rejected our proposals and refused to counter. Instead, they use bully tactics. They intentionally misrepresented to the press the cost of the proposal, overstating it by 60%. And they've done the same with AI, claiming to protect performer consent, but continuing to demand consent on the first day of employment for use of a performer's digital replica for an entire cinematic universe or any franchise project. And the company, said Fran, are using the same failed strategy that they tried to inflict on the Writers Guild, putting out misleading information, all in an attempt to fool our members into abandoning our solidarity and putting pressure on our negotiators. But just like the writers, our members are smarter than that and will not be fooled. Our resolve is unwavering. Join us on the picket lines and at solidarity events around the country and let your voices be heard. One day longer, one day stronger, as long as it takes. Fran Drescher, president of the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of TV Radio Artists. One more here. Good news for Social Security recipients. A 3.2% COLA cost of living increase. Got a comment here from Rich Fiesta, Executive Director of the Alliance for Retired Americans, who we feature on the show every month. In fact, he'll be joining us uh, a week from today. He said the 71 million Americans who rely on their earned Social Security and Supplemental Security income benefits will undoubtedly benefit from this modest cost of living increase, but it's not enough. He said the increase amounts to an additional $59 per month for the average retired worker, a COLA increase is always welcome news, but too many older Americans will continue to struggle to pay for basics like food, housing, and prescription drugs. Rich will have some more uh, details on how they calculate this. It's kind of an intricate formula, but uh, again, that'll be uh, next week on the show. Right now, I have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. 
From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at I-F-P-T-E dot O-R-G. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go down to Dallas, Texas right now. Joining us on line number one today is Brent Taylor. Brent is a third-generation Teamster, and he is also the Southern Region Vice President of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. He's got a great story to tell. In fact, we had the Teamsters on yesterday, and I'll tell you, they are on a roll here negotiating some pretty good contracts. They had the uh, cannabis dispensaries outside Chicago, and today we're talking about people that are involved in the airline industry making uh, crucial parts for airplanes and helicopters. And I'll tell you, the Teamsters know exactly what they're doing there. We want to make sure they continue doing that, but they had a struggle. Brent Taylor, welcome uh, to America's Workforce. I see you're a third-generation Teamster. I want to talk about this contract, but uh, I'd love to find out about the history of our guests. And uh, yesterday, we had uh, Jim Glimko, and his grandfather was the guy that started 777 in Chicago. And uh, it sounds like you're coming from a similar type of family. Brother, I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Go ahead. Well, I appreciate it, Flash. Yeah, I um, just want to say thank you for having me on the on the show, number one. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, being the Teamsters, uh, it's really all, all I've ever known. Uh, my grandfather ran our local union, 745, back in the 70s and 80s. My dad was a business rep for Teamsters Local 745 back in the 70s and 80s. So I grew up in a, in a union home. All I've ever really had is union jobs over the years. And, um, you know, all of being around that uh, when I was a child, uh, I think really helped me uh, today to really know exactly uh, what goes on in the lives of our, of our members. I, I drove a truck and worked the dock for 14 years at Yellow Freight uh, before the, the union asked me to come work for them in 1997. 
and I came in in 1997 as an organizer and uh, was successful with that. I organized a few groups uh, over the over a year, and after a year, they asked me to be a business agent in 1998, and then I took over the local in 2004 when my predecessor retired, Tyson Johnson, and I've been in that seat ever since um, as as a secretary, treasurer, and business manager of Teamsters Local 745. And then I was very fortunate uh, last year, uh, Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman, who now are the general president and general secretary treasurer of our international, asked me to run with them uh, on their campaign on their slate, and I accepted. And I can't uh, thank those two guys enough for giving me opportunity to now be the vice president of the southern one of the vice presidents of the southern region we have another vice president in the south Thor johnson he's out of uh florida mm-hmm. but uh i just um you know I've, I've had a great year and a half as uh, being a vp and um i can i can tell you this um not to get off track but you know this new administration has made a huge huge impact in my opinion, on labor uh, in this country, especially with this historic UPS contract that's just been negotiated and voted on by 80, over 80%, which is the highest um, uh, percentage in uh, UPS history. So, you know, with that, um, I just feel like we're on a good path and uh, we can talk more about the contract we just ratified here locally and any, any other contracts you want to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But in a nutshell, that's that's really where I came from. Um, this is all I've ever known. This is what I believe in. This is what my where my heart's at, and uh, I'm I'm 100%. I guess what they call a union guy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Same here, brother. Same here. You know, I, I think what we're talking about here, or what you reference, is is attitude, and uh, there there there's a new breed out there. People like uh, Sean O'Brien and Sean Fain with the UAW and uh, they're, they're not, they're not taking any prisoners here. <laughs> they're saying, you know what? <laughs> we, we, we got to get this done and we got to get it done right because we weren't taken care of before. And we, you know, obviously the UAW, the two tier wage system and the concessions they made back in 08, 09. And uh, with UPS, you didn't get the done. You didn't get the deal done some years back. So we're, we're seeing it. We're seeing a different attitude, and it's obviously it's obviously uh, burgeoning right now. And uh, employers are saying, "Wow, okay, all right, well, where do I sign?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've seen a, a big difference in employers uh, at the negotiating table in the last year or so. Um, you know, with Sean's leadership and these national contracts that have been overwhelmingly uh, approved by the members. I think it's a testament to exactly his his um, his insight and his aggressiveness um, has really helped us in negotiating. Just like, uh, for instance, uh, our contract that we're going to talk about a little bit later, Solvay, it's what we call a white paper contract, which is a one-off. It's not a national contract. It's just an individual contract with that company. We call it a white paper contract. And even when these white paper contracts, we can tell the difference in the company's attitude. They're they're paying attention. They mm-hmm. they know the teamsters have uh, done an about face and are actually moving forward very rapidly 
and um, and representing our our members and getting good strong contracts. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be part of uh, ABF negotiation. ABF is one of our large LTL carriers out of Arkansas, and uh, we um, negotiated an historic contract for those folks. Um, they their increases in pay over the last five years equaled uh, all the pay increases over the last 20 years. We got it done in five years. Uh, that's just one situation. Uh, the UPS contract, like I uh, mentioned earlier, historic contract. Uh, and in fact, um, Sean O'Brien and Fred Zuckerman were the head negotiators for that contract uh, at the table and did an amazing job. And uh, we have some UPS. I have an office down in El Paso, Texas. Our jurisdiction is pretty, pretty large. And I have about 700 UPS uh, members down there. And they are extremely happy with the contract and the raises and some of the contract uh, language that's been changed. Uh, their tensions increased. Um, health and, their insurance is solid. Um, they're just, you know, a happy group, of, a happy group of members. And there's nothing better to walk into a facility and you see a lot of smiling faces and they really appreciate you being there and appreciate all the hard work that, uh, you know, our negotiating team did for UPS. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a movement in the United States. Um, you know, I saw a um, an article the other day that a, a new poll is out that over 70% of Americans are in favor of unions, which is the highest it's been in many, many years. Uh, so it's uh, the union density is out there uh, for the taking. We just mm-hmm. have to you know, do our jobs and, and uh, get out there and, and see the folks and and listen to what they need and listen to what their complaints are and and uh, make a difference. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of uh, non-union workers looking at what's going on in America right now, saying, you know what? There's there's a better way. There's a better way, and it's the union way. That's that's exactly what's happening. Let's get into this uh, this contract that you got at, at Solvay, yeah. and apparently. Uh, it sounds like the work is pretty intricate. We're talking about um, workers, very, very highly skilled, producing materials used to build commercial airlines and military helicopters and airplanes. And obviously, you know, you don't want to disrupt that. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to mess that up. But, right. but, but, but here we go. Hey, you know what? Employers will try to do anything. Talk to me about what happened there at uh, Solvay, Brent. Well, negotiations uh, went fairly well uh, at the beginning. Um, it didn't. We took a few months to get the contract uh, negotiated. Uh, at the end of the day, though, we knew that the um, pay increases were not adequate in comparison to what we felt like uh, our members deserved, especially with these, this company making record profits. So. The first contract that we took to the members was voted down overwhelmingly. And at that point, we um, went back to the table with the company. Uh, let me back up just a minute. We took a strike vote from our uh, members. They gave us the authorization to uh, to strike the company, and that was overwhelmingly uh, in support by the members. So that's one key thing I really wanted to talk about today is the only reason we, we as union leaders um, obtain good contracts is solidarity. If the members are together 
and they stay together, it gives us so much power at the negotiating table. Mm-hmm. And I'll just give you a, for instance, if I've, if I've got 98% of the folks and our members behind us and vote to strike, the company pays attention to that. Now, if I won't, I had a uh, strike vote and it was 51%. Well, the company looks at that too. And they look at us like, well, you're not as strong as you think you are. You've only got 51%. But when I got that 98%, they pay attention. And that's mm-hmm. what happened with, with us with the survey is the members got behind what they wanted in their contract, which helps us tremendously at the negotiating table. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm not the union. Um, our president of the local is not the union. Our members are the union. They're the ones who dictate, honestly, how good a contract they're going to get by their solidarity. And these folks stuck together, went back to the negotiating table, got them some more raises, uh, some more money, and came back and they voted it in three to one. So um, the only reason we, we got this done, in my opinion, was number one was the members. Number two, Chris Taylor uh, negotiated the contract uh, for our local. Um, he did a great job. But he couldn't have done what he, what he got done without, without our solidarity with those members. I see 11.5% wage increase over the life of the contract. That, that got my attention. What about, what about benefits? Uh, were those increased benefits as well? Benefits stayed the same. Benefits didn't change as far as retirement and insurance. Those guys have great, great insurance. Um, the pay is, is, was very important to these, these folks, especially with inflation and what's going on in our country. Unfortunately, you know, everything's higher food, gas, you name it, um, has really increased. And, you know, what I've seen, um, in the last couple of years, um, with the way inflation and, and, and our country and the stability of our country, as far as finances, um, is, you know, historically we would get a 2% raise, a 3% raise. If you got a 4% raise 10 years ago, you were, you were doing something. Now, you know, we start off at five and 6%. Um, we start off at, well, more than that. We've, we've been agreeing to the five, six, 7% increases, which you've never seen uh, in the history really of, of labor when it comes to negotiating uh, collective bargaining agreements. Um, so, you know, the, the employers are paying attention, uh, to our members again, when there's solidarity, uh, uh, their ears perk up, um, tremendously. So, um, we just feel like these, these members, um, at Solve, um, did what they had to do to get the good contract that they got. Uh, there were several, um, language changes some vacation language changes, uh, some uh, personal day um, benefits that were extended. So it's a good contract. We're very proud of it. Obviously, with the way it was voted in, the members are very proud of it. And you're right. These are very uh, uh, sophisticated pieces of equipment that these these members run. Um, Everything has, you know, very, very precise tolerances when it comes to making the products uh, that they make there, the carbon fiber and, and all the other plastics and what have you they make for the airline uh, industry uh, is very, very specific. And um, they, they have a, a talent that's, that's really hard to replace. You can't just stick somebody in a, you know, a million dollar machine 
making a million dollar piece of, of equipment, um, that person has to be skilled. That person has to, um, you know, be part of something bigger than um, just what he's doing or she's doing. Um, right. Yeah, they're, yep. they're very, very happy with their contract. Yeah, we're talking commercial airlines and military helicopters yes. here. You want to get the right people there for that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, the, the resins and the products that they use, like I said earlier, uh, it's, it's very uh, specific tolerances and, and heat tolerances and cooling tolerances. And it's very specific. Um, and um, it's a testament to to those to those members out there for their hard work and and their speciality really when it comes to their jobs brent taylor joining us on our live line today brent is secretary treasurer of local 745 and he's also a teamsters international vice president for the southern region of the united states teamsters.org is a national website We'll continue with him, and later in the show, we're going to check in with Andy Strom and talk about the National Labor Relations Act. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A.org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. We also appreciate the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Joining us on our live line today is Brent Taylor. Brent is Secretary Treasurer of Local 745. They're based in uh, Dallas, Texas. He also serves as International Vice President for the Southern Region. Talked about a uh, another win here for Teamsters. This was a vote of 117 to 23 for a new contract at Local uh, 745 at a chemical plant in Greenville, Texas. 
But I want to talk about Yellow Freight, if you don't mind, because I was reading that when you started working as a Teamster, you were a dock checker at Yellow Freight in Dallas. And uh, sadly, this is a company that just filed for bankruptcy, and there's, well, I think it was like 30,000 members there. Uh, and, and we don't have too much time to get into this uh, because we talked a little bit at length in the first segment there. But can you give me some details? What happened to that company? I, I, I understand, and maybe you could add to that, the management was a train wreck over there and kind of ran the company into the ground. What do you know about that, Brent? Well, yeah, I've been involved with Yellow since I was 17 years old when I went to work uh, on the freight dock there. Uh, I worked there 14 years again, as I said earlier, um, as a checker on the freight on the dock and uh, a driver. Uh, you know, this this bankruptcy has really hit home uh, for me and our local. Our local is made up mostly of uh, freight members. Uh, we do have uh, a lot of other miscellaneous, and we do have car haul and, uh, of course, UPS. Um, but it hit home for us. We lost uh, approximately 700 members uh, due to the bankruptcy. And, you know, a lot of those guys were my, my good friends, personal friends. And it was, uh, it was a sad day uh, to see those folks coming to our, our local and, and without a job. And, and we know why uh, it shut down. Uh, it wasn't our members' fault. It, it wasn't the Teamsters' fault. Um, this company has been struggling for years and years. Uh, we took concessions back in 2008, 2009, up to a 15% reduction in our wages. Uh, they reduced our pension, uh, whereas a member had to work four years to get one year's credit uh, to their retirement. Uh, and overall, since 08, 09, um, if you put the pencil to it, our members have given back approximately $5 billion, that's with a B, five billion dollars back to that company uh in concessions to try to help them um be profitable um unfortunately when when yellow and roadway uh, were two separate companies back in the day and uh, they merged in 0809 and when they merged uh nothing ever really was the same uh, with management uh, i think there was a, a civil war with managers who was going to run the company roadway guys or yellow guys and Unfortunately, uh, the company got left behind uh, these last 13, 14 years. Um, just really poor management, excuse my French, but um, it was very disappointing to see what they did. And, and really, after they filed bankruptcy, and for these uh, higher-ups with Yellow Freight to give themselves, literally gave themselves bonuses the week that they did not pay insurance premiums for our members. And let me tell you something. When you have a member's wife coming to the local union in tears, asking, well, what are we going to do about our doctor's appointment next month? Well, what am I going to do about my, my cancer medication? Uh, when you see that, it, it pisses you off, man. It just knowing that it's not our member's fault. Uh, Sean O'Brien uh talked with this company numerous times on trying to get something done. Um, John A. Murphy, who was our freight director, had many meetings with this company trying to get something done to save this company. And uh, it just, they were just too far gone. Uh, there was nothing we could really do for them. 
So, yeah, it's been a tragedy for our members. Uh, we're doing everything we can to try to help uh, these guys get other union jobs. Mm-hmm. But I was honest with them. You know, we had a big meeting, had about 500 people. And I just told them flat out, you know, I don't have 500 positions to put put you guys. You know, there's just not that many union jobs in Dallas, Texas. And unfortunately, there's not. So, you know, we're doing everything we can for everybody we can as far as trying to find uh, place them in other uh, union companies. But again, it was a tragedy. And um, that company had been around over 100 years. And, you know, when I worked for it back in the 80s and 90s, it was a it was a good company to work for. It really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You enjoyed going, you enjoyed going to work, and um, they uh, was very well run. But yeah, it's a tragedy. It is. It really is. You know, we had a uh, union rep over in uh, Oklahoma City a couple days on the show. Bruce mm-hmm. Davis, his name, and he's mm-hmm. with the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, and they lost a lot over there of uh, oh, the wow. yellow drivers. And uh, they, they, he did a job fair. And they mm-hmm. hired 80 of them right away, and they're working yep. on another job fair. So, yeah, you know, unions got to stick together, so it's important. I know you're doing the best you can, but that's that's a lot. That's a big nut there to crack. I mean, 30,000 all of a sudden, gone. Jobs, you, you've, but. Uh, yeah, all- yeah, it was, it was 30,000 overall employees. I believe it was 22,000 union members lost their jobs overnight. Yeah, so it was, um, it was a tough pill to swallow. All right, Brent, we're going to leave it on that note. I thank you for joining us, and congratulations on that contract at uh, 745 for those workers. At, uh, I appreciate at that, Flash. It was, a, it was nice being on. I appreciate it. All right, national website, Teamsters, that's plural, dot O-R-G. Brent, always welcome here on America's Workforce. You stay in touch with us, okay, brother? Okay, man. Y'all have a good day. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Andy Strom is a labor attorney, and he's coming up next. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with Layuna. Find out what it takes for Layuna to keep America running at Layuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind. Visit SurveyAndBalladSystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International 
National Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can get more at oh.aft.org. Melissa Cropper will be joining us next Tuesday. Right now, let's go to uh, New York City. And joining us is Andy Strom. Andy's a blogger for On Labor. Do check that out, On Labor. Dot .org a service of uh, Harvard University and uh, a lot of times Andy comes to the table to talk about uh, recent decisions it could be the Supreme Court the NLRB today we're going to talk about two very serious flaws in how the National Labor Relations Act has been interpreted now this is legislation that goes back to the 30s but you know when <laughs> no disrespect to lawyers here Andy no disrespect but apparently well you, you it depends on what side of the fence if you're uh, like pro union you're going to see the law another way if you're a staunch conservative and if you don't like unions you'll see it a different way why don't you talk to us about well the first part of this is refusing to bargain especially when uh, employees decide to unionize. I'm going to let you pick it up from there. Go ahead. Sure. I mean, yeah, so just to follow up on the point you were making, I mean, I think people in the labor movement, I'm sure many times on your show you've heard people come on and talk about how bad or how weak the labor labor law is. And, you know, the reality is it's not so much that the National Labor Relations Act is a bad statute. It's that over the years it's been interpreted in a bad way. And there's two examples that I want to talk about today. And the first the one you mentioned is the failure to bargain. And a lot of times uh, when unions win an election, workers vote to unionize, uh, the employer responds simply by saying, well, we're not going to bargain. We're going to, maybe we're going to file objections saying that the union did something improper during the lead up to the um, election or that there's some, you know, somebody voted who shouldn't have voted or whatever it is. And they can take that case to the circuit courts and, the time it takes to litigate those cases is usually about two to three years. Now, the National Labor Relations Act itself, um, the statute says that uh, the, um, the National Labor Relations Board uh, has the authority to, um, where it finds that an employer has committed an unfair labor practice, which is what this is, uh, to order them to take such affirmative action uh, as will effectuate the policies of this act. And that's a very broad uh, power to remedy violations. Um, but what's happened in the case of um, the refusal to bargain is the, the standard remedy for that is just an order that says, well, from now on, you have to bargain. And I really, I can't, I've, over the years, I've been trying to think of this you know, sort of, you know, in my head, is there any other law in the world where you basically get a free pass for the first violation? Right. Where the remedy, you know, it's like if you, you know, I mean, sometimes I guess people get pulled over by the cops and the yeah. cops just give them a warning. <laughs> but not when it's adjudicated, you know, not when you go, you know, uh, you go in and like there's an actual finding by, you know, a judicial body or a judge or, you know, that you violated. The law. You know, no one comes to you and says, um, OK, uh, you know, uh, just don't do it again. And that yeah. literally is the remedy. And so, you know, one of the things that's um, just, you know, um, and, you know, in this case, uh, you know, the NLRB issued a decision 
about 50 years ago saying, well, we can't, we can't figure out a remedy for this, so we're not going to do it. And everybody, you know, sort of since then has kind of just sort of accepted that as well, that's how it is. And I just want to, you know, talk about the importance of, you know, there's a, the NLRB general counsel, uh, Jennifer Bruzzo. So, you know, that's the most important job and the most powerful job really in the NLRB. And, um, you know, President Biden has made a tremendous appointment with uh, appointing Jennifer Abruzzo to that job. And I just, you know, again, have to have a momentary digression, you know, for any of your listeners who are, you know, thought about, you know, like Donald Trump for some reason or who have friends who like Donald Trump for some reason. I mean, the contrast between the person that Trump had in this job, who was a career management lawyer, who was really the most anti-union person ever to hold this position uh, versus Jennifer Abruzzo, and what Jennifer Bruzzo is doing is she's having her staff sort of go through all of these old, terrible decisions um, and, you know, write these long scholarly briefs explaining why the NLRB got these issues wrong. And, um, you know, in this case, you know, what she's saying is, you know, so what the NLRB has said in the past is, well, we can't have a remedy because we don't know what would have happened if there had been bargaining. Right. We don't we can't impose a contract on the employer. We don't know what that contract would have said if the employer had actually sat down to bargain. And what she's saying, and this is like the basic principle in the law, is the fact that there's uncertainty about what would have happened doesn't mean you just throw up your hands and say, well, if there's uncertainty, there's no remedy, because clearly there's some cost to the workers of not having that opportunity to bargain for a couple of years. And, you know, one thing sure. that I suggested is that, you know, one of the measurements that they could use is how much money did the employer spend fighting the union? Right? Because no employer is going to spend money fighting the union unless they think that in the long run, they're going to save money. So if the employer mm-hmm. thinks that, you know, let's say the employer spent a million dollars fighting the union, uh, that's because they think that a union contract, you know, would have maybe cost them a million dollars. So why don't you use that as a measurement and say, hey, make them pay whatever they spend fighting the union to the workers as a remedy for, uh, you know, for violating the workers' rights. Just just a final thought here. Uh, you know, obviously, if they stretch that out, a lot of the people that voted for the contract may not be working for that company no, exactly. anymore. And I think you know. That- that's what they're counting on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's a way of discouraging. And I, you know, I wrote about this when the, you know, people were very excited in Staten Island when, you know, the Amazon warehouse workers voted to unionize. And I wrote about this at the time and I said, look, you know, Amazon is going to do what, you know, employers do they're gonna, And this is what they've done, right? They're just going to delay, you know, force the, um, you know, the union to go to court. Um, and, um, you know, and in the meantime, wait, Years go by, there's turnover among the workers, there's discouragement among the workers. Uh, you know, even when you get to the bargaining two or three years later, right, people are so demoralized from the whole experience, right? And that's mm-hmm. totally part of the playbook. Exactly. Okay, just a couple of minutes left here. I love this one, and, and this involves captive audience meetings. And uh, the employers say, well, that's free speech. They, they should be allowed to say what they want to say, but you're saying, or the general counsel saying, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the right to force someone to listen to your speech. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I love exactly. That. And so, I mean, and that's a case where, you know, the NLRB made it, you know, issued this decision you know, about 70 years ago saying, you know, the employer can force workers to attend these meetings. 
and there was really no analysis or reasoning behind it. It was just like, well, yeah, I guess they can. And, um, and what, you know, people have pointed out is there's no, you know, no other con, I mean, the concept of free speech in any other area has never included the right to force someone to listen to you. Right. And if we uh-huh. lived in a, you know, if, you know, we live in a country where the ruling party could force people to attend their political rallies, right? We would call that an authoritarian state, right? We would, right. I mean, people would, you know, we would, you know, we heard about that happening in other countries, you know, people would be outraged and saying, you know, where's the freedom? People don't have freedom. And, but in this country, we just take it for granted that the employer can, you know, corral people into these meetings, sometimes small meetings, sometimes large meetings, and just bombard them you know, with this anti-union propaganda. In a lot of cases, in an organizing drive, you know, you know, some, sub, some group of workers never even hear from the union directly, right? Because the union doesn't have access to the workplace. The union, you know, has to sort of track people down at their homes. People are working, you know, often two jobs. You know, they're busy. They don't have time to just, you know, be sitting at home waiting for the union organizer to come to their door. Um, and so they never even hear from the union, but they hear you know, these sort of, you know, horror stories from the employer, you know, about, you know, how they're going to be forced out on strike and, you know, the plant's going to close or whatever it is. And, um, so, um, yeah. And so the, what the argument that, um, you know, Jennifer Bruzzo is making is that the right to free speech, right. Doesn't include the right to threaten someone with their job and basically make it a condition of employment that you attend this meeting and that whenever you call workers into a meeting on the clock, that threat is implicit. I mean, you know, a boss tells you what to do. Uh, you know, you know that if you don't do it, um, they might fire you for it. We'll see what uh, Jennifer does on this one. Andrew, thank you so much for bringing this to the table. This is really important stuff. We appreciate what you do. And we're going to have you on a on a regular basis here. We'll kind of bounce back and forth with uh, Joyce Goldstein, who's really busy now, especially working as general counsel with the uh, bricklayers. So you take care. Keep doing what you're doing and stay in touch. Okay, brother? Okay. Thank you. All right. That's it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, Scott Paul of the Alliance for American Manufacturing and the American Federation of Teachers in the state of Texas. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.